Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. I'm Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, we have the altcoin slayer on the show, <laughs> Eric Wall. How was that conversation? Yeah, this is the first time I've actually gotten able to talk to Eric Wall, and he's somebody that's really helped me formulate mental models in this space. And Eric Wall, for those that don't know, he very, very prominent in 2017-2018 as uh, a guy that seemed to go against everyone's grain, like not just one particular community's grains, but everyone's grain. Uh, and so like while he's a big Bitcoiner, uh, he's not afraid to tell Bitcoiners when they're wrong. And while he was never really uh, conv uh, convinced by the Ethereum crowd, he has as of late uh, talked very positively about certain merits of Ethereum's construction, but then we'll also go ahead and say that the overall all Ethereum project is a complete mess. <laughs> so this guy thinks for himself, uh, and that's kind of why we got him on, um, not to go into depth about um, his mental models and the way that he thinks and his opinions about certain things, but then also as an exploration into uh, the way that he puts thoughts together inside of a space where so many people are telling you how and what to think. Uh, Eric Wall thinks for himself. This is bankless meets tribeless. I really feel like Eric Wall strives as much as possible not to affiliate himself with one particular pattern of thought or one particular tribe. In fact, I think early on, he he very much associated himself at, with uh, as a Bitcoiner, mm -hmm. like very much... Uh, put the the mantle of that tribe on his shoulders, and we we talked about almost his like ejection from the Bitcoiner sphere by by the so called high priest and what that what that felt like. It was almost like he was excommunicated. Mm -hmm. So we we went through that. Not I guess maybe the through line here is we have a a contrarian thinker, a tribeless individual, and what's interesting to me, David, is he is coming to some of the same conclusions that we've come to as part of the the bankless mm -hmm. platform some different ones right. but also many of the same conclusions but he's doing it like out, outside of uh, the Ethereum ecosystem's influence or the bankless ecosystem's influence. He's almost like arriving at these opinions independently. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that's what was so interesting about, I think, this podcast and Eric's journey and, and his story. It's just the way he thinks, but how he has arrived at these opinions. It's definitely not through groupthink and through like tribe affiliation. It's like when he says it, you know that like he actually believes it in that moment. Not to say he doesn't change his mind mm -hmm. because there are many instances where he he's admitted changing his mind. In fact, you know, the tweet that got him on the show, I think was uh, he said in 2020, he stopped being wrong about ETH. Those are his words, not mine. He stopped being wrong about ETH. So this is someone who's also very willing to do it like a 180 when he sees that... Um, the evidence points in a different direction. So kind of a, a cool thinker, somebody we've wanted on the podcast for a while. And we actually went down a rabbit hole that we weren't expecting to towards the beginning of the podcast where we get to talk about my favorite subject of like <laughs> oh, evolutionary yes. crypto asset. It was or not like, planned. Yeah, what is it? Like biology and like the evolution of crypto networks, right? I have a deep-seated belief that the best way to understand this industry is through a biological perspective. Uh, and Eric Wall uh, shares that belief. And we actually kind of went down that rabbit hole earlier in the podcast. And I think that's going to be a, a new line 
kind of a line of topic uh, on the Bankless podcast that we haven't really touched on. I'm really happy that we were actually able to touch on it. Yeah, it's kind of like expect the unexpected in this podcast, right? At the mm-hmm. very beginning, he actually called me out on some beef that yeah. we've had previously, right? Mm-hmm. So we just enter in on that conversation. So overall, really fantastic episode. Of course, you can get a download of David and Mai's thoughts in the debrief episode. That is available for premium subscribers on the Bankless premium feed. So make sure you check that out too if you are a premium subscriber. And with that, David, let's talk about the fantastic sponsors that made this episode possible. Balancer is DeFi's most powerful automated market maker. Typical AMMs just have two tokens inside of one liquidity pool, which can lead to fractured liquidity across the many pairs in DeFi. With Balancer, you can access the full power of multiple tokens inside of one single AMM, which unlocks an entirely new playing field of possibility. This makes Balancer an awesome building block for so many different use cases. Balancer pools can make asset indexes, but instead of paying fees to portfolio managers, Balancer lets you collect fees from traders who use your portfolio for liquidity. Additionally, Balancer smart pools can be programmed to have properties that change according to predetermined rules, such as changing the swap fee based on market conditions, or even liquidity bootstrapping pools, which can help you launch and distribute your token with day one liquidity. At Bankless, we used a liquidity bootstrapping pool to sell our BAP t-shirts to much success. Balancer V2 brings powerful new features that makes your money work even harder for you. In V2, idle tokens are capable of generating yield in DeFi without sacrificing liquidity in the pool. To top things off, Balancer is reimbursing gas costs with BAL rewards, meaning that your gas fees are reimbursed up to the cost of the transaction with the Balancer governance token. Balancer's mission is to become the primary source of liquidity in DeFi by providing the most flexible and powerful platform for asset management and decentralized exchange. Dive into the Balancer pools at pools.balancer.exchange today. Guys, we've entered a bull market. Now is the time to start building your crypto empire and you should do it on Gemini. You already know Gemini is the world's most trusted crypto exchange, but now you can do even more than trade. You can earn. You can take one of your crypto assets and park it in an interest earning Gemini account where you can get up to 7.4% annualized. There's nothing more satisfying than earning passive income on an asset that you're already bullish on. This is a crypto native superpower. You know what's coming soon too? A Gemini crypto credit card. Yep, that's a credit card, not a debit card. It gives you rewards and hard money crypto assets, not something inflationary like airline miles or hotel points. Gives you up to 3% cash back in crypto. The card is coming in Q2, but you should get on the waiting list right now and we'll include a link. See what I mean? This is more than just trading. Gemini is your bridge to crypto for the bull market. Open a free account in less than three minutes at Gemini.com slash GoBankless. Get $15 in Bitcoin after you trade your first $100. That's Gemini.com slash GoBankless. Bankless Nation, we are super excited to introduce you to our next guest. Eric Wall is a contrarian crypto investor. He's the chief investment officer at Arcane Investment. He's someone I don't always agree with yet. He's also someone I always appreciate. And I think that's because he busts through groupthink. He isn't afraid to change his mind, yet he manages to stay extremely convicted in his beliefs at the same time. I think we're going to learn a lot from Eric in this podcast. Eric, welcome to Bankless. How are you doing today? Thank you so much, Ryan. Um, kind of surprised to be here because uh, we've had this, uh, you and me, we've had this uh, ongoing spat about a particular argument that we've had in the, in the <laughs> past about how to correctly apply the term trustless 
to different types of cryptocurrency systems. And because of our inconsistencies of opinions there, I've, uh, I'm, a I'm a principled person and I try to stick to my principles as hard as I can. And one of my principles is that if somebody uses terminology in a way that I think is harmful to the overall ecosystem, then you know, I can't prevent people from saying what they say, but I can at least uh, choose who I engage with. Uh, I think the spat that we had was, you know, kind of a mild one, and you know, now I'm pretty much over it. But it would be good if we could just, you know, just spend a few seconds just, you know, hashing over that little piece of disagreement that we had uh, around trustlessness. Uh, I can I, I can explain the argument if 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 that's helpful to you, and you can give your opinion on it. Yeah, let's do it. And to bankless listeners, uh, as you can see, the introduction did Eric justice because we didn't <laughs> plan any of this pre-recording, and we're jumping right in with the contrarian opinion. Um, Eric, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to hear you. I, so I think this is in regards to an article that I wrote uh, sometime in March 2020. And the reason I'm remembering is actually because I did pull it up because I was wondering if if you would. Uh, pull this up and want to talk about this first. And the article title is called ETH is Irreplaceable. And uh, it's basically a taxonomy about the uh, trustlessness, the spectrum of trustlessness of certain assets. So I make the basic uh, assertion that, you know, different assets on Ethereum or in crypto writ large have different levels of settlement guarantee, right? And like even in the real world, different assets have different levels of settlement guarantee. Some are backed by the nation state. Some require uh, like legal um, legal trust. Uh, some are more bearer asset instruments. And some I put in a quadrant called a trustless quadrant. And again, I pitch this as sort of a, a spectrum of trust, right? Recognizing that nothing on earth, nothing that can be created, nothing that has ever been created is completely trustless. But I think you take issue with the uh, the term trustless in and of itself. And I would love for you to explain that as we start this episode, where you take issue, and uh, we'll see whether we actually disagree at the end of this uh, yeah. or whether we agree. Yeah, so I, I can give my take. Uh, the reason that I took issue with how you um, characterized uh, the uh, trustlessness taxonomy was that uh, if I remember it correctly, and I am, please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you basically put different cryptocurrency projects on an axis, on a, on a spectrum where they went from uh, more trustless to less trustless. Whereas in, in yeah, you can see uh, in, this, in this chart here that uh, basically you can go from more trustless to less trustless, where I think that there are uh, things that are completely trusted that should not be on a trustless diagram at all. So uh, I don't think that trustlessness uh, can, in, can uh, incorporate everything because uh, there are some things that should be completely outside of the spectrum because they're trusted. So I don't think that you can say that, you know, uh, a bank is just... Uh, less trustless or 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 or, or uh, and that the die is more trustless i think that 
banks are 100% trusted and doesn't belong in a diagram of trustlessness at all. Uh, I think that's if I that's how I recall the argument, and I try to persuade you to remove uh, completely trusted things from a, a trustlessness diagram, and you rebutted and said, "Well, you know, that's not how I think about it." And I said, "Well, in, if that's the <laughs> case, then I'm going to stop engaging with you until." Uh, you've refreshed your thinking on it. And then we had all these discussions around how you can view this topic. And uh, now I'm, you know, I've, I've listened to your bankless pod and I, I, I don't think that you are a, um, a malicious actor in any way. We just had a disagreement about terminology, but I don't think that uh, you are harmful or that you're bringing a negative uh, uh, nuance to the industry, so that's why I came on. That's why I've now uh, come around. So I'm on the pub now. I think we can get over this, and we can we can be friends again and and chat about things that, that are really important because I think that our main goals with our efforts in the cryptocurrency space are pretty much ninety percent aligned. So Eric, I think that if I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly, that what you are really asking to change in this diagram here is really asking to change where like the X and Y axes are. So you do agree that there's this thing and concept called trustlessness that some crypto assets try to emulate, like, you know, Bitcoin and, and Ether to perhaps the most degree. And what I think what you're saying is everything to like perhaps on the left side of this diagram, you you are saying like why are we even calling it uh, putting it on the trustless spectrum at all in the first place? Let's use completely different words for a completely different part of this zone. Exactly, exactly. What different words would you use then, Eric, versus trustless? No, I just put um, trusted and trustless in completely different axes. You should have uh, a split here where you put things that ultimately do uh, depend on trust. In a complete on a completely different axis here, and uh, because right now, if you look at the uh, you have trustless issuance uh, uh, on the y uh, axis and then the trustless settlement on the x axis, I think that uh, you should have uh, uh, there should be uh, an axis that goes to the left where you have completely trusted things. Uh, but you know, I don't want to spend too much time on this spat. Can I just uh, can I, I just say something? Of course. I actually don't think uh, there's a real spat there. I think m much of this is actually uh, semantics, and probably the result of uh, me just being a sloppy diagram <laughs> drawer. I think maybe someone who's listening to Bankless uh, and in the Bankless Nation can take the diagram that we're showing right now and come up with something that better illustrates that. Um, because fundamentally, I think um, I agree with with what you're saying, right? Like um, some assets uh, are completely trusted on on one side of the spectrum, and then you have this spectrum of trustlessness where maybe you get this this perfect state on the other side of the spectrum that's that's completely trustless. But of course, no asset can achieve that. I just think the diagram is maybe uh, drawn in a way that does not make that clear. And uh, somebody else could do a better job. I am not a uh, diagram. <laughs> that is not my day job. I was just trying to write an article to get a, a concept out there and a mental model out there, which is the mental model of 
different assets on Ethereum have different degrees of trust. So if you're buying USDC on Ethereum, final settlement actually happens in MeetSpace. It happens inside of a Coinbase uh, bank account in the traditional finance world. And that is a much that has much different settlement guarantees than something like DAI, where you have a larger degree of that settlement happening on chain. And of course, that is much different than something like Bitcoin, where the entire settlement process, it's a bearer instrument, the entire settlement process is on chain. I felt like the crypto world didn't completely understand that at the time. Anyway, I actually think that we are closer in alignment maybe than, uh, than was previous thought coming into this podcast. And some of this is just as a result of a, a sloppy diagram design that could be improved upon. What say you, sir? <laughs> I'm perfectly happy with this resolution of the argument. And I think that um, uh, if we just zoom out a little bit and like, why are we having this types of disagreements in the first place? It's because you know my um, interest in the cryptocurrency space. Um, you know, I've, I I got into into the Bitcoin industry uh, very long ago. I purchased my first bitcoin in 2012 uh please don't rob me because i got uh, i lost all of them at when mount gox uh, collapsed in 2014 so don't think that uh, <laughs> you know, don't come to my house and think that you're gonna fi- find a, an ocean of bitcoins there that i bought for uh ten dollars a piece um uh, but uh you know i've become so fascinated by uh cryptocurrencies as a concept and as a revolution that I'm so ideologically and philosophically interested in this space that you know how I view my participation and interest in this space, it's not about, you know, I don't care uh, as much as I probably should uh, fr- from a commercial perspective about, uh, you know, making the right types of business relationships or uh, positioning myself strategically. Like if I had that intention of, you know, just, building out um you know making as much money as possible then i would have been on bankless podcast a year ago or you know so uh, to Mm -hmm. to to market myself but i care about the space and i care about things being uh stated correctly so that we can as an industry move in the direction that i think is most interesting and that direction is where how much can we decentralize pieces of the economic world and the finance world uh, to to basically create a form of revolution that changes how humans can interact and how society can function. Uh, that is much larger and much more interesting goal to me than, you know, caring about who I am friends with. Um, so that's why I will get into arguments with all sorts of people that I kind of actually like, um, but I cannot, you know, I'm just trying to make sure that we're all on the right path of uh, optimizing uh, how much we, we, we can improve uh, the, systems of, the systems of today. Well, Eric Wall, I think that is an extremely noble goal, and it's a goal that we share on the Bankless podcast as well. We very much view this as... Uh, you know, a very fun industry with a lot of you know money making potential, but really at the root of it is much more of a political and cultural revolution. Uh, and we see ourselves as uh, you know people that are attempting to steward that revolution into existence. And so, tip of the hat for being on that same you know path as well. And I kind of want to just dive deeper into 
why this industry and why this revolution resonates with you so much. You talked about your philosophical interest mm -hmm. in uh, this industry. Let's just dive deeper down that hole. What about this industry do you think really is fitting for the future of the world that you think should come about? Mm. Yeah, I, I just want to add one, one thing uh, to that uh, before we get into that topic, which is you know, what, how come you, uh, the three of us we seem to have the same ideological alignment. How come mm -hmm. we, we get into these kinds of spats? And I think that has to do that I am such an old, I describe myself as an old dog. You know, I, my terminology and my way of thinking of things comes very much from the early days of Bitcoin. And we uh, shaped the early terminology for things uh, in order to make sense and classify different Crypto, uh, cryptocurrency systems, and uh, that has been a very you know uh, uh, conservative and restricted type of terminology and taxonomy. So uh, that's why you know people that come into the space perhaps a little bit later that aren't uh, you know as plugged into that type of taxonomy thinking. That's why I think we can get into disagreements. It just happens that we come a little bit into this space from different angles. I'm a long-time Bitcoiner. We care very, very much about very specific anal things, and we are a bit OCD uh, in terms of that. So that's the only reason that uh, I think that you know we have these kind of kinds of spats. Uh, but uh, to get back to your question, um, you know, I have, I, I have, um, I, I have actually, I, uh, I don't have a YouTube channel, but I have a YouTube account, and uh, I use that YouTube account just to collect all the videos of presentations that I've made that other people have uploaded, and I put it into a a, a playlist so that I can, you know, uh, gather um, all my performances uh, in the in, in the past that have been recorded. And one of those performances that I personally uh, like the most was when I was invited to a Swedish uh, cryptocurrency, uh, um, just a, a meetup. And they asked me to talk about consensus algorithms. And uh, in that format, I got full, full uh, control of what I wanted to express and what I wanted to say. And what I wanted to talk about there was, and now I think, uh, maybe this sounds uh, like an outdated take or, you know, everyone's heard it before. But when this happened, this was four, four or five years ago, I think it was four years ago when we talked about it, I described how I view uh, Bitcoin as a, a digital, uh, a primitive digital form of life. Because if you think about what actually uh, constitutes life, what is life form? Is an amino acid a life form? Is a bacteria a life form? Uh, there is no discrete step where something uh, goes from being, you know, not alive to more alive. It's it's a spectrum, just like the trustless trustless spectrum that we talked about. Uh, we when things are complex enough and they are self sufficient enough and. Uh, they act organically enough, then we say they are alive. So, you know, a, a bacteria operates almost entirely algorithmic. And I think that Bitcoin, uh, uh, when I compare Bitcoin to a very 
primitive life form, uh, like a bacteria or even perhaps a mushroom. Mushroom is the one that I think Bitcoin mostly resembles. Uh, I do classify Bitcoin as a as a as a as a as a, as a, as a, as a primitive form of life, and I think that there are going to be more and more uh, pr- primitive life forms. Like everyone knows, of course, like AI when AI becomes sentient. But you know, not all life forms are sentient, uh, but they can still be sent. They can still they can still be life forms. So we don't have sentient uh, digital uh, life forms yet, but we are now seeing that we are ha- are having digital life forms that haven't reached sentience yet. So the way that I think about it and what makes me most interested in the cryptocurrency space is just thinking about uh, how we are seeing digital things come to life and we can analyze those as life forms. And I think that if you look at the Bitcoin system, um, you know, every 10 minutes, there's a block, almost like a pulse. And if you... Listen, if you put your ear uh, next to a, a Bitmain server hall, you can actually hear Bitcoin's breath. Um, so I do think I do think of these things as primitive life forms, and I'm very interested in, and, and all cryptocurrencies are competing uh, with each other, uh, which makes it, uh, we also have an evolutionary aspect to it, which uh, where the uh, strong and the weak, uh, the, the, the strong, the, it's, it's the survival of the fittest. Uh, it's basically like a big Hunger Games game. Uh, and what adds an extra interesting quality to this evolutionary game of cryptocurrencies is that what's, um, you know, in the, in the physical evolutionary world, uh, you know, a cat cannot clone the features of a dog. A cat, it can do that over many, many iterations uh, and, and it can evolve into a dog if it needs to. But in the cryptocurrency world, uh, one cryptocurrency can actually steal features from uh, another project, which changes the entire dynamics of the evolutionary game. So uh, Charles Darwin, when he was analyzing different life forms and evolution, um that was probably very interesting to him uh to think about and i think that we have a new uh evolutionary game with different rules that are to me because they're new it's it's even more interesting so it's the intellectual uh challenge of being able to actually take all of that in and analyze it from that perspective. And that later also translates, like if you understand the evolution of cryptocurrencies, if you have that as your framework, that you're thinking about it as, as, as uh, things that have different evolutionary char- characteristics that, that make them uh, fit to survive, then you can actually become an investor uh, because if you can pick the ones that are likely to survive, then you can also be a good investor. So that's how... Uh, even though this sounds very, you know, abstract and theoretical and scientific, it actually maps perfectly well with being a cryptocurrency fund manager because I just got to try to understand the dynamics of the game and the evolutionary game. And and, and I think, David, that you've probably written some article that mm-hmm. uh, also tunes into this team, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. This is uh, really one of my favorite subjects in this industry is, is, is I actually don't think you can really understand the crypto industry at large if you aren't viewing it from a biological perspective. Uh, and one of the reasons, like this, this industry is famously like so multidisciplinary and that complexity of so many disciplines turns into complexity theory. 
uh, which turns into just the the conversation that you started off with was with is where does life actually begin and and we don't really know but the patterns are that life is always about the management of economic resources and if some sort of organizational entity can manage these economic resources appropriately to the, to the benefit of the life form and growing because it's as a life form it is efficient at consuming economic resources while also capturing further economic resources all of a sudden we have like the groundings for sustainability and so i i applied this same sort of mental model to um to DeFi apps, right? Uh, where DeFi apps are, and, and I used ether as like the metaphor of like nutrients or food. Value is like the the new communication medium inside of the you know the internet of money or the crypto world. And so DeFi apps that consume ether and then output some sort of like useful product that is demanded by the market are able to go out into the world and venture into this new landscape that is the internet, find nutrients, which is value, you know, valuable apps assets uh, and then produce something new right and so the the mental model for this is that like or, or more concrete model for this is that MakerDAO you come in and you submit ether you can and the MakerDAO consumes that ether and then it outputs die and that die is demanded by the environment around maker and so because maker is a viable economic um, manager life form it has sustainability. And we can talk about that with basically every single DeFi app. Like there's some amount of value input, there's some amount of value output, and because the output is demanded and because the uh, the DeFi application is efficient, uh, there is more value that is created by the DeFi app more than it is consumed. And all of a sudden it is a net outputter of economic resources, which is good for the world. There's more value created by these things than what is consumed. And that's why they are sustainable. And we can put them into the category of life forms. And I think this is an insanely interesting topic of conversation that I was not actually did not know we would actually be going down this rabbit hole. But it's literally my favorite rabbit hole in all of crypto. Might as well. Um, but uh, yeah, that was uh, something that I dived very deeply into into 2015, 2016. And it's been my framework for, of thinking for a very long time um but it's it's i think you phrased it very well and i resonate with with what you said to uh, a very large degree well really quick there because i think we're we're starting to see how eric wall thinks right which is uh, kind of part of the entire purpose of this podcast because i think you you bring some really interesting insights uh to the table but you almost just painted yourself just now as sort of a digital biologist of types, right? Just studying the evolution. Yeah, I used to call of... me. I, I used to call myself uh, crypto Darwinist. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, and so. I was thinking about. I, I was. I was. I was. I was thinking about uh, actually giving out that. The, you know, there's this Darwin Award that you give to. Uh, and someone does something really basically. stupid, though, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I was thinking that I could be the crypto Darwinist, and I could give the Darwin Award to like projects like uh, you know, like IOTA. Uh, <laughs> that has a central. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that has, you know, if, if, if a crypto project has, you know, one server, and if that server shuts down, the entire system fails, then you get the Darwin Award. Um, unfortunately, okay, so, so this is this is like the question of like, your lens on the world is a crypto Darwinist, a digital biologist, right? Like, the, the large question is, um, I think, in that perspective, what sorts of digital life forms 
are more likely to outsurvive others. Because if that's your lens of thinking, that's really how you have to think about everything, whether it's Bitcoin or uh, Ether or Ethereum or any DeFi protocols. I'm curious before we get into some like specific takes from you, Eric, um, about that lens, mm. what sort of digital life forms do you think have the best fit in crypto? Well, um, I'm going to answer your question like from how I thought about it from th three years ago, but my thinking has changed a little bit since then. But how I used to think of it was that if you're going to think of something as a life form, uh, is decentralization a very big necessary component? And I do think that it is perhaps one of the most fundamental components into creating something into a life form. Because, you know, if, if you know, a server on your computer, is that a life form? I mean, you can turn it on, you can turn it off. It doesn't have uh, a, a, an ability to sustain itself. Like if you look at the mushroom, uh, the mushroom uh, actually does provide, uh, it, it, it takes up nutritions from the soil of the ground and it, 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 uh, it transforms that into a resource for the rest of the ecosystem of, of, of the nature. Uh, so it, li it doesn't live, it lives in a, in a kind of symbiotic uh, relationship with nature. And I think that all life forms ultimately, uh, in order to survive in the long term, have to find their place into the uh, ecosystem, into the, into the ecologics of it. And I think that Bitcoin fits very well uh, in that category because, um, you know, Bitcoin pays for itself. So, so uh, people want access to the censorship resistant system of Bitcoin to preserve wealth and transfer value. Uh, so that's how Bitcoin contributes to us as an organism. And then we contribute to Bitcoin by providing energy and electricity to, to Bitcoin. So there's a symbiotic relationship there where, uh, you know, it's very difficult to kill Bitcoin because Bitcoin provides something to us. Uh, and as long as that organism is providing something to us and, and we need uh, uh, and, and actually pays for itself with the currency that, that uh, the miners can, can get from, from mining it, then uh, I see a very a very strong likelihood for that organism to survive. But then, of course, you know there are, uh, and I'm not saying that that may you know that the most decentralized currency. And this goes into my to my later stage thinkings of as of late. You know how much does decentralization actually matter? You know, uh, is a cryptocurrency like if you take something like uh, um, a semi-decentralized cryptocurrency, does it naturally have a shorter lifespan uh, just because it is more centralized? You know, my, intu my intuition tells me that more centralized platforms, they have regulatory, uh, uh, regulatory risks around them that could cause them to get shut down at any point in time. So that the more centralized platforms uh, are much uh, more likely to survive in the long term. But uh, we also have to consider that, okay, so, so what happens if a, if a, if a, if a, if a semi-centralized platform meets regulatory cra crackdown? Can they not fork that platform 
to use a more decentralized consensus algorithm and make the organism survive anyway. So I'm not as convinced today that, you know, I used to just look at the current fundamentals of each system, but now I am taking much more into account the uh, transmutative uh, qualities that all cryptocurrencies have. And I think that perhaps what breathes life into Bitcoin is not the uh, code uh, in the Bitcoin system. It's much more the community uh, and the, the developer community that breathes life into the Bitcoin uh, system as well as the Ethereum system. And that uh, changes the equation a little bit. Uh, if you catch my drift. Eric, so I'm reminded of this metaphor about um, like ant colonies or beehives where like there is this organism, right? But it, the organism isn't the bee. It is the swarm, right? It's not the it's not an individual ant. It is the system at large. And these ants seem to be working in like this mindless just like algorithm, this mindless, like each ant feels like this little bit of code and it just is part of this overarching system. And it's the overarching system that is the entity at large, right? And that very much feels like Bitcoin or Ethereum, right? Where like the Bitcoin, is, it's one, there's one thing, there's one Bitcoin, but uh, there are like, you know, in potentially infinite nodes, right? And you, what Bitcoin is, when you download the Bitcoin uh, blockchain, you are replicating Bitcoin. You are going through the life process of, you know, copying the DNA and then putting it on your node, your server. So it's not your server that's alive, but it's the desire to replicate Bitcoin. And so holistically, uh, I mean, there's, there's a reason why Bitcoiners on crypto Twitter are called cyber hornets, right? Like the metaphor sticks. Um, and so the, not one um, person or individual represents Bitcoin. It's, it's about a collective movement. But also my question to you is like, you know, are to some degree ant colonies and beehives aren't really the most paradigm breaking thing as a life form on this planet. Like, you know, humans, I would say with with more, in, in my opinion, centralized energies inside of us, you know, a, a cerebral cortex and, and just straight up like brain power. I would say that is a an analogy towards more centralization. And to some degree, like the question is like, well, if there's more centralization is the lifespan of the system uh, shorter, perhaps, but if the regulatory risk never comes, to some degree, there is some sort of justification for more centralized operation, more prefrontal cortex operation, if you will, because under the paradigm that you know regulatory risk never actually comes, well, then you can actually plan and progress further into uh, just you know become more progressive and more iterative faster. How do you feel about this analogy and this comparison? No, I like it because uh, I like the ant. Um, colony and analogy, and I think that if you apply that to humans, uh, humans are also ant colonies in two ways. Uh, the first way is that you know we just like um, you said, each individual individual ant is uh, a very primitive being that can probably only have perhaps twelve different ideas mm -hmm. uh, and right. one at a time in their head. Go left, go right, it's hot here, right. it's warm there, it's sticky, you know. Uh, and also smell is one of the things that you use. Uh, but and we humans, we are also but but the colony itself, the ant colony itself is a completely different life form that can resist uh, you know if somebody puts a shovel into an ant colony, it reconstructs it it reconstructs itself. Uh, so that uh, the ant colony is much more uh, sophisticated and has much more 
a stronger chance to survive than what a single ant does because it works and it's unified uh, as, a, as a unified life life form. And we as humans, uh, we also function that way in, in in two ways. The first one is that we are made up by bunch of cells and bacteria uh, and all and uh, our internal organs. Uh, each component within us is also a little bit like an ant. They have, they do have very, very simple tasks that they perform, but the collection of all of those components creates the sentient beings that are us. So in that way, each individual human is an ant colony. But then if you bring it into a larger scale and you think about society, society is also like an ant colony. And uh, because we are, uh, compared to a society, each human is pretty you know, simplistic. They go to work, they have uh, their desires that they want to fulfill, and they write and do things or carry objects. But in us, but if you think about like a nation or a, a DAO or a, 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 you know human humankind as a whole, that's also a very big ant uh, colony. And uh, I mean, of course, humanity as a whole has much more uh, bigger chance to survive than a single uh, human uh, does. So I do think that uh, decentralization happens at many different. Levels, and I do think that, you know, that, and that's still something that I'm grappling with. You know, when I'm analyzing cryptocurrencies, uh, how much the decentralization quality uh, is necessary for the uh, long-term lifeline of that project. Also, because the thing that I previously mentioned that these projects can transform, they can change, they can warp very quickly, much more quickly than anything we've seen in the fiscal world. So let's talk about uh, applying your brain and that lens to things. So you mentioned earlier in the introduction, Eric, that you're part of the old guard, got into Bitcoin early, uh, got into Bitcoin to study this digital biology that was in front of you, just intellectual curiosity. You also got in for the uh, social movement, decentralization. You got in for the right reasons before everyone knew it was going to jump to like 50K, right? Um but we had an inkling at that time. I'm curious, though, because I've seen you on Twitter and other places. You're also not afraid to break rank with some of the old guard. And I think, of course, it's uh, difficult to say that Bitcoin has any one singular uh, thought view. But certainly Bitcoin maximalists do, which is there shall be only Bitcoin. Bitcoin will accrue the most value. There are certain other ideals, I would say, that I would attribute to Bitcoin maximalism. I'm curious your thoughts on this, Eric. What do you think Bitcoiners get wrong? Mm, yeah, this is such a uh, such a tough, tough uh, topic to discuss, and something that I've been one of my uh, like main, not only professional but also you know just personal challenges in life. Um, you know, I as I said, I think that you framed it pretty correctly that I'm this digital biologist and I observe these different life forms and I'm very interested in the dynamics and the interplay and the hunger games of crypto. That's what I'm primarily interested in. So I don't, and in that game, you know, I have things that I root for and I root for the decentralized ones to survive because if they survive and the industry moves in that way, then I think that we have 
very, I mean, uh, if we focus on centralized systems and then they get shut down and, and then the, the, the game is over and there's nothing more for me to analyze, that's why I try to make sure that we keep things as decentralized as possible. And that's why I have been a proponent of Bitcoin for very long. But if uh, there is another system that comes along and it can... Uh, flaunt their wings in a way that uh, is interesting. You know, I'm not going to say that I just want this single life form uh, to persist. I want the evolutionary process to produce the absolute uh, best uh, winner. And in order to do that, uh, you have to... Um, uh, you, you, can't, you can't lock your mind into a single uh, frame of thinking and one of the what's happened what happened to me interacting with the bitcoin space was that uh in 2017 uh what happened was that you saw all these other cryptocurrency projects pop up and you had tons of capital flowing into icos and all of them marketed them marketed themselves as the next bitcoin that had unlimited uh, scalability no fees and uh perfect decentralization and i saw that a large of the community that could that could have become Bitcoiners and con that could have contributed to our goals of breathing this life form or helping this life form uh, develop were uh, directed in the wrong direction. And I and I knew that because of my uh, computer science background, I was was uh, and I, I I actually my master's degree in computer science I did. Uh, study, uh, I took my degree to specifically arrange it around the cryptographic primitives that underpin blockchain technology. So my master thesis that I wrote in 2015 was about blockchain technology. So I knew that I had the ability to de dive deeply into these different white papers and understand which projects are uh, poorly constructed. So I took it upon myself to uh, try to educate or help people understand which projects are the wrong directions if we want to create everlasting uh, life forms. Um, so the reason that I became very popular in the Bitcoin industry was because they, uh, they, 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 they used to call me the altcoin slave. <laughs> they viewed me as a person that could protect Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, I had comfort, I had, I had uh, uh, meetups that I would go to here in Sweden where they would, you know, basically, uh, before I went up on stage, they called, let's bring on the altcoin slayer. And then everyone applauded, and, and that made me very, very uh, likable. Everyone liked me in the Bitcoin industry. And of course, I uh, liked being liked by a lot of people a lot. As one does. Uh, but my I, my intellectual interest in this space has never been tribal in the sense that I just want my coin to survive. I, I, I zoom out and I just want the industry to survive. And in order for the industry, industry to survive, it means that we need to make the best decisions possible. So what happened to me was that I noticed some types of research going on in the Ethereum side of things. Uh, if you if you want if we want to get specific, it was actually uh, the ability that you could construct uh, layer two solutions up on top of Ethereum uh, that provided uh, uh, 
very very attractive um, uh, decentralization uh, properties uh, whilst also preserving much much more of the UX uh, advantages uh, than for instance Lightning does. So I think that Lightning is very good at being decentralized but I don't think that Lightning has a great user experience whereas if you look at the rollup uh, it's uh, it has a very high degree of decentralization because they've solved the so-called data availability problem that used to haunt these uh, layer two solutions on Ethereum protocols before. But they solved that problem, and uh, a rollup functions very much in a way as a sidechain functions. Where uh, maybe maybe it, I'm getting too complicated with things, but if I put it simply, in a rollup, what you can do uh, if you have an Ethereum address. I, uh, right now, I can send you money, an, uh, uh, an endless amount of money, or well, not endless, but I can send you any amount in my wallet to your uh, wallet on the rollup without you even knowing about the rollup system existing, without you running a node. All you have to do is generate the private key, give me the public, uh, your Ethereum address, and I can send you for low fees at an excellent user experience, I can send that money to you. Whereas in Lightning, that's not possible. The recipient has to run a Lightning node. They need to have inbound liquidity in order to accept the payment. Um, so uh, when I noticed this, uh, that the layer two systems on Ethereum um, were uh, providing benefits that we couldn't do in Bitcoin because we don't have uh, statefulness. We don't have, uh, and if we look at something like zk rollups, we don't even have the, um, we don't even have the uh, the the the, uh, the virtual uh, virtual machine in Bitcoin or uh, opcodes, if you will. We don't. Have, I don't know if you're familiar with the word, but Bitcoin basically operates on something called opcodes, and each opcodes executes a programmatic function, and we don't have complex enough opcodes in Bitcoin to create something like a zk rollup. And ZK rollups and optimistic rollups are excellent layer two constructions. And we can't build those in Bitcoin unless we upgrade the system in a little, in, in, in some way. So uh, that made me, um, you know, I tried to, I, I thought that, you know, I had this naive theory that because I had been a Bitcoin for so long and they, I was the altcoin slayer and everything. And I thought that everyone really, uh, believe me when I uh, you know, that I was intellectually honest. I thought that I had made enough uh, progress as a Bitcoiner and demonstrating how much I'm committed to the right goals and ideals that when I say that there is something happening in the Ethereum space that we should pay interest uh, to because it, uh, moves, it moves the needle in terms of technological innovation, I thought that they would believe me, uh, but they didn't. And what happened instead? Uh, they called me. Uh, Peter Todd called me potentially dangerous, and John Carvalho uh, basically called me. Um, uh, I don't know if he called me a scammer or uh, many of them called me an idiot uh, and uh, rejected. Uh, they thought that I'd become a shitcoiner. Yeah, shitcoiner is basically what happened. They started to call me a shitcoiner. Is this like being like? excommunicated from a religion it feels like a little bit by the high priest yes that's that's very much how how it felt like and i um you know i tried to uh 
say like you know if you want to perfect the like you know i'm still on your team and i think that if you want to make bitcoin the best it can possibly be then we need to look at all types of innovation that is happening in the cryptocurrency space all of that is relevant it doesn't matter where it comes from uh, and i think that people like and i don't want to mention names but there's a lot of people that just inherently mistrust any type of innovation that comes outside of the bitcoin uh, community and uh, that i think that that comes from ignorance that it's because they don't have the ability to i mean it's just a technological system the rollups are a technological construction. It's objectively, objectively defined. Doesn't matter at all uh, who's the author if you just look at the code. And that is a part of the Bitcoin philosophy that we don't care about who Satoshi, Satoshi Nakamura is. We care about the code and what it can do. So I really don't understand how you can be so uh, against uh, innovation coming out of other projects if the uh, results of, of uh, what, what that technology can provide is actually helping you. That seems very much to me like some just, you know, tribalism and unintellectual, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, like you said, religious type of behavior that saddens me a great deal. And it actually, I, 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 I said that it broke my heart to see Bitcoiners not being able to mm -hmm. take this in because it did. It did break my heart and it made my uh, entire uh, cryptocurrency uh, experience completely different, realizing that, you know, we weren't, uh, people didn't see it the same way as I did. And I am still trying to do what I can to, to work for the Bitcoin system, but I do see so much things happening inside of the Ethereum system that I think is really, really interesting as well. And now, I mean, Bitcoin is this digital gold, and I do believe that Bitcoin has legs as a digital gold. But uh, and and I am following the the innovations in Bitcoin, like taproot upgrades. I do think that's interesting. But um, I mean, if you are if you are intellectually curious and uh, you want to see what you can do with the blockchain protocol. Um, then it's more interesting to just as a researcher to look at what's happening inside of Ethereum right now. So as a researcher, I do look at uh, Ethereum very much like that's where you can look at what what the results of innovative uh, designs and, and research can lead to. Uh, so that's why I actually pay more attention to what's happening inside of Ethereum these days. And one of the things that made me, um, uh, that actually cemented uh, my understanding that Bitcoiners weren't acting in a good faith technological uh, view on these things was that uh, uh, after uh, is, uh, ZK rollups uh, were presented, and I tried to I tried to 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 bring uh, ZK rollups as a as a as a research project to the Bitcoin community, and I asked them on Twitter like, let's look at this research research that is being done, and isn't it quite fantastic what they've been able to achieve? And everyone said no, 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 that's just com 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 complete bullshit. That comes from Vitalik's computer scam nonsense, pre mined bullshit, blah 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 blah. Uh, then uh, Greg Maxwell, Gregory Max 
Maxwell, who's the one of the most respected and original uh, long-time contributors to the Bitcoin uh, system, uh, he came out and said that, yeah, uh, ZK rollups, uh, those are awesome, but they were actually my idea. Look at this forum post that I wrote in 2013. And I, and I was like, you see, like the developers, the, 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 the most knowledgeable developers of Bitcoin actually resonate so much uh, uh, with the uh, um, how good and how useful this technology is that they've actually been trying to create it themselves. And now that it has been uh, finished because the Ethereum Foundation is, and other uh, cryptographic, like the Zcash community has worked so much on perfecting uh, zero knowledge proofs, those are now efficient enough that we can actually use them. Now that they are here, uh, it's uh, and 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 now Bitcoiners are saying you know that they're they're calling it a scam, even though that you know we've been trying to create these primitives in, in Bitcoin for such a long time. So that just made me uh, you know how what, what can I argue with you know even the Bitcoiners designers themselves wanted this, and I think there's just this big gap in the Bitcoin community where the developers uh, like the, the 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 high priests of Bitcoin. Like the, the people on Twitter, uh, they have uh, one understanding. They have a, a limited understanding of the Bitcoin system, and they. But they're very uh, the, the 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 tones, like the the how they phrase themselves and how 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 they act and how they behave. They think that they're carrying the torch for uh, the Bitcoin developers. That they're 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 they're, they're, they're preaching the gospel of the, Bit, the 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 Bitcoin, the core views of the. Uh, smartest people in Bitcoin, but many times they aren't, and that's my problem. That many times the people who are the loudest in Bitcoin are sometimes uh, are not the most uh, educated or knowledgeable about Bitcoin. So then I get into arguments about these with these people because uh, you know it's usually um, I don't have that much disagreements with real Bitcoin developers. I just have disagreements with people who don't understand what Bitcoin de developers uh, truly think. And so, but me being very vocal on a person on Twitter, the Bitcoin developers aren't that vocal uh, on Twitter, put me in a different category. And uh, I had to, you know, I thought, I thought I would be able to bridge the gap between the Ethereum and the Bitcoin communities. But I ended up becoming this controversial figure. Uh, Ethereans call me a Bitcoin maximalist. Bitcoiners call me a shitcoiner. What, 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 I, I'm, I'm trying to stick true to the facts and I'm trying to stick true to technological innovation and progress. Um, if that makes a shitcoiner and a maximalist of me at the same time, so be it. I'm not going to change uh, who I am and what I say. And uh, I do want to I just add a nuance of humility to that because now I'm making it sound like I'm the smartest guy in the room and everyone else is stupid. Uh, uh, that only happens most of the time. Some of the time I'm 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 I'm, I'm completely I'm completely wrong. I'm I'm kidding. Uh, I am uh, I'm not the smartest. I'm not you know I don't consider myself to be uh, you know so much smarter than everybody else. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm also in this space just trying to learn as much as I can and figure things out. 
and and this is the situation that I've gotten myself into. Yeah, Eric, I, I've also attempted to try and bridge the gap between Bitcoiners and Ethereans, and it seems to be just an insurmountable chasm to to cross. So my question to you, to really finish off this this part of this conversation before we move on to other things, is that you know you you talk about Bitcoin and, and its merits, and then you also talk about the Bitcoin community and their rigidity in thought. Did your experience with being, um, you know, being called a shitcoiner by the Bitcoin Maxley, Maxies and everything that you've talked about, did that change your stance towards Bitcoin, the system at all? Did, or do you separate the community from Bitcoin and say, look, well, there's this tribal community around Bitcoin, but it doesn't really impact Bitcoin, the, the system, Bitcoin, the BTC, the asset, Bitcoin, the protocol. Or did your reaction and relationship with the Bitcoin community also change your stance to what you think Bitcoin really is? Yeah, I mean, uh, when I started to talk about ZK rollups and the necessary opcodes that we would need to implement in uh, Bitcoin in order to facilitate a, a, a state machine and an opcode that can interpret a zero-knowledge proof, and uh, also just seeing how the discussions around drive chains is going, I am a little bit more bearish these days that the types of innovations that I think are necessary to create a useful, uh, a user-friendly payment mechanism out of Bitcoin uh, have been restricted because, uh, you know, because Bitcoin, if we're going to upgrade and, and, and make the system as use, useful as possible, then we need to, I need to make sure that when I speak to the Bitcoin community and the developers speak to the Bitcoin community, that they understand uh, what is the most rational path forward. And if we become stupid as a community, a stupid community cannot make a coin survive good. And I don't think many Bitcoiners believe that Bitcoin is perfect as it is, and it just needs to continue on and then it will win the world. But uh, it's not like that. I mean, uh, you're not going to have, you don't have the capacity in Bitcoin uh, for everyone to open uh, even lightning channels. And even if we even if, even if we say that we did have the capacity to open up lightning channels using channel factories and all other things that you can do with lightning, um, like then even then uh, the user experience of lightning may not be uh, sufficiently well equipped to actually become the payment mechanism that the entire world uh, uses. So I do think that there are challenges to be overcome. Uh, when it comes to making Bitcoin perfect, I do th still think I do still think that Bitcoin is uh, uh, the, the the project that I like the most. But yes, getting shunned from well, I wouldn't say I'm shunned. You know, I still have a, I'm still relatively liked by <laughs> uh, part of the Bitcoin uh, community. Uh, so I'm not like, completely shunned, but yes, of course, you know, it broke my heart and it also, um, uh, made me perhaps diversify my portfolio, uh, a little bit. And I, I do hold, I've made it public that I do hold ether. Hey, Bankless Nation, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Eric Wall thus far. We are about to turn to a recent tweet that Eric Wall just made where he said that I stopped being wrong about Ethereum sometime in, in 2020, where Eric Wall decided to change his mind and be more optimistic about the future of Ethereum. 
so we asked what what did it take for him to really change his mind after he came uh, after he had he had these negative experiences with these bitcoiners we also turned to an article he wrote that really impacted me where he titled it proof of stake is less wasteful and this actually ultimately became one of the core components of ultra sound money this thesis that proof of stake is inherently uh, extremely efficient because it has to award the least amount of ether because the people that are staking are the most bullish on it. So they'll compete for the least amount of ether possible. And that's why proof of stake doesn't have to issue all that much. Eric Wall, as a contrarian lone wolf investor, has been through so many crypto cycles. So we finish off this conversation just asking Eric about what does it take to really make it through this industry in a multi-cycle uh, time frame. Uh, and so he has a ton of great lessons and takeaways that I'm really excited to share with you guys in the second half of the show. But first, we have to take a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless and you can do the same for your project. Thank you Uniswap for sponsoring Bankless. Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum and just recently released Aave version two, which has a ton of cool new features that makes using Aave even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi, Money Legos, Yield, and Composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can deposit in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have deposited collateral. Here you can see me getting a 200 USDC loan against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens and ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock that interest rate in permanently. One of Aave's V2 features is the ability to swap collateral without having to withdraw your assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. Aave does all of this for you all in one seamless transaction, so you don't have to repay loans in order to change the collateral you have backing them. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. What we've seen up to this point, I think, is uh, someone who is a digital biologist looking at these systems, also not a Bitcoin maximalist, maybe more of a decentralization optimizer, decentralization maximalist. And it seems to be the case that that's part of the reason that they called you the altcoin slayer is because you called a lot of the altcoins out on their shit, on the stuff that wouldn't work. Uh, but that intellectual pursuit also, 
brought you to Layer 2s and Ethereum and some of the improvements in, in rollups that are being made, and you saw the potential for uh, decentralization in these Layer 2s that didn't quite exist in uh, Bitcoin. I, I put this tweet out, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was wrong about ETH, I said. No one actually says that. I was wrong about ETH, but a lot of people should be saying it. And I get a lot of replies, of course. It's just, you know, it's fun on Twitter to like poke the bear a little bit, Eric. Not that you do that at all. <laughs> it is fun though. Um, and then your reply was the one that actually was most interesting to me out of the the many hundreds of replies that that, that thread got. And you said this, 2016, I was wrong about ETH when I sold it for $6 after the Dow hawk hack 2017 i was wrong about eth when i rushed home to grab my 2fa exchange login after the first enterprise ethereum alliance announcement think i'd missed the rally 2020 i stopped being wrong about eth and i think you linked to a specific tweet that you made in august uh 2020 presumably you purchased some eth at that time before you hadn't had as much. Can you talk about that journey? I think a puzzle piece to the journey is um, bullish on rollups, maybe bullish on Ethereum scalability in this new avenue. But was that the only part of the journey? Tell us about the journey into an ETH position. First of all, I think the tweet that you're referring to, uh, I bought uh, Ethereum and I had Ethereum before that, but I did... uh, acquire as much ETH as I could when it was trading around $110. Uh, and this was during the uh, COVID, uh, the coronavirus-driven crash in, must have been March uh, 2020. Uh, but yeah, I did, I, I was wrong about, you know, in, in 2016 during the DAO hack, I was, uh, like you said, a decentralization maximalist. And when I saw that uh, the, uh, the the way that I thought about Ethereum was that uh, this was an immutable an attempt to build an immutable uh, execution uh, engine for uh, um, autonomous programs, and uh, the DAO hack uh, showed that the social consensus overrules uh, the programmatic code. Which means that, and at this point in time, in that point in time, the project was heavily centralized around what Vitalik thought. Uh, it's become, it's it's improved from that now. Uh, so, so I, I did, I, I did think that uh, after the DAO hack uh, and uh, seeing that, uh, actually, I sold. The reason that I sold was just seeing that the DAO got hacked, and I that's when I immediately just rushed and sold all my ether at, at six dollars. Uh, and then I was skeptical whether or not uh, uh, fixing, uh, surgically fixing the DAO hack using social consensus was the right path. Now I do think that it is the it was the right uh, decision to make. I've changed my my, my mind there. But uh, I, 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 I let's uh, perhaps address the thing that you asked specifically. Like when did I actually start to come around to the Ethereum system and? I think um, I think it was probably around. I mean, in 2017, that's when I heard about the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, and Ethereum was trading at eleven dollars. And I was at work listening to this uh, this this uh, webcast where it was being announced, and I I understood how huge this was going to be. You had enterprises that were 
going to use Ethereum. Now the Enterprise Ethereum, the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance didn't turn out to be that big of a deal from my perspective. Anyway, they haven't been that uh, major of a contribution, but it did bring so much um, like uh, validation to Ethereum as a project. Uh, so I knew that that was going to be massive, and that's why I I, I, I rushed home to to acquire more ETH at that time. But I, w- I wouldn't say that I was like an uh, uh, an Ethereum believer at that point. I just saw that there was going to be uh, probably a rush in the price at that point. What happened was that I was working in the traditional financial uh, sector as a techno as a, at a tr- technology provider company. So we were building the company that I worked for was called Sinover. Uh, not a lot of people know about this name, but uh, in terms of providing uh, exchanges like uh, like the New York Stock Exchange or the Australian Securities Exchange, like exchanges where stocks and other financial instruments are traded, uh, there are two large companies, or there were two large companies providing matching engines and clearing house technologies uh, to the world, uh, and that was uh, Nasdaq was the largest one. Uh, they actually had their market uh, their market technology division here in Sweden, where they developed the tech that they sell to other exchanges. And the second company is also here in Sweden. It was called Sinober, and uh, they were the largest competitors with each other for twenty years. And I joined that firm uh, right after I finished my master thesis on blockchain technology, and actually wrote the master thesis for Sinober. Uh, and the, the thesis was about how can we use uh, blockchain technology to, cl- to create a decentralized security settlement system. Um, and then I got to work with uh, Sonobor for quite a few years. And I very quickly became the head of the cryptocurrency and blockchain strategy, strategy there. And I was involved, well, not, I was uh, to some extent involved in the, uh, you know, I got to learn how do we supply these exchanges with technology. Like when an exchange wants to upgrade, like in a match, if a matching engine uh, run by the Australian Securities Exchange wants to upgrade their system and how slow that process was. Like they have to get the technology from a technology provider and then it goes through all this, you know, Q&A and testing. And uh, it's just, the, the, the you know, the, these types of things could take five years uh, to move from one system to another. The types of innovation that I was seeing happening in the internet overall, you didn't see that in the financial world at all, and you didn't have open, permissionless innovation in uh, traditional finance. It was very clunky, and you had all these antiquated systems that were interlinked with each other. And the way that the securities uh, and also the banking system has developed is, you know, you had the paper-based processes, and then you digitize those paper processes uh, to emulate what you could do with pen and paper into digital uh, processes, and then you just built on from that, and you ended up with this incredibly complex, interlinked mess of a system with different moving parts that, like, if we wanted to recreate the security settlement system uh, and clearing system of today, I think we would have done it completely differently. But we cannot, you cannot change the entire plumbing of the financial world uh, uh, by improving the current system. I think that you got to start from scratch. And I think that uh, if you want to start from scratch and you want to give, uh, you want to make the, um, the, if you want to make the 
if you want to create the correct environment for innovation, then you have to look at how innovation has happened on the internet. Like when I, for, for instance, if I get in, if I go to, when I went to the US, uh, I visited a crypto conference in the US in 2018 and I rented a car, uh, a Jeep, uh, and I wanted to drive through the Nevada uh, desert to go to Las Vegas, which was where, where the conference was. And I had a GPS system there. And uh, the at one point in time, I was running out of fuel. And uh, I uh, took I used the GPS system to uh, point me to the closest uh, gas station. And they said I had to drive uh, two hours to this location. Uh, and, and I was driving on this uh, straight road for two hours. And when I arrived there two hours later... And uh, now I'm almost running out of gas. Uh, the GPS tells me that this this is the first time that you can turn around your car and go back the other direction and drive four hours <laughs> that way instead, and that's the closest uh, gas station. So I almost uh, I almost died in the Nevada desert. This was in the, the Death Valley part of of the uh, uh, of, of the of the U.S. Like it's close to the Yosemite uh, National Park. So I almost died because of this shitty GPS system. And it's because uh, the car company, they got their technology delivered by a specific technology provider. Pro- uh, provider. And if I have my smartphone instead, uh, then you know there I can choose between any type of uh, map app uh, I can choose between Apple Maps, Google Maps, and if they aren't any good, there's going to be another app. And that's what you want. I think of traditional finance as this Jeep where I'm restricted to this shitty system that a single company has developed. And if you want to upgrade that, you have to ask the company, give us a better GPS uh, system. Whereas if it's the internet, then you can have all people from all over the ver- world deliver apps and you can just install the best one and use the best one. And that's why uh, map apps on smartphones are so much superior than, than uh, the shitty GPS systems that make you die in the Nevada desert that you'll find in the, tra- in the traditional world. So I want that type of... Uh, permissionless, permissionless innovation environment to happen in uh, in the financial world, and I wrote a long email to the CEO of our company. I still have it. It was in 2019, uh, where I told him that you know the what I'm seeing happening in Ethereum is exactly this vision uh, of not the dying in the, the Nevada desert because we're having permissionless innovation for financial apps happening right now in Ethereum and it's going to move so much faster. It's going to, it's, it's, and because we cannot upgrade, we cannot wait for a thousand engineers to upgrade a thousand antiquated uh, financial systems running on uh, programming languages from the, from the uh, 70s, that's not going to, we're not going to get there with the, with the current financial system. But cryptocurrency, like Ethereum platforms like Ethereum, bring us a clean slate where we can create the right type of environment to create the best type of, of uh, platform for financial innovation. So I think that the, we basically have, like when the taxi industry had their Uber moment, I think that uh, the traditional finance 
industry is having their Uber moment right now. And I go and I meet like traditional you know, market making companies and financial institutions. And, you know, I think that they should look at DeFi. And uh, that also makes it complicated for me to talk with Bitcoiners because they hate DeFi. And they hate DeFi because they look at all the rug pulls and they look at all the scams. But I think that's the wrong way to think about it because uh, you could have looked at Bitcoin in 2011 and you could have said, well, the only thing that Bitcoin is used for is to buy drugs on uh, Silk Road. And they would have been correct. But it's the fundamental properties of the system that decides what you can do with it with, in the future. It's not how it's currently used. We used to always say, Bitcoiners always used to say, well, yeah, there's a lot of people buying drugs and doing shady stuff with Bitcoin. But uh, if you look at uh, uh, a car, for instance, uh, who was the first, uh, which demographic was the first demographic to use cars? Well, the cars were very, very expensive. Normal people couldn't afford cars, but people that were making bank robberies they uh, could spend the money on a car because that could make them actually escape the police when they rob the bank. Uh, so they would buy cars. And uh, that's why uh, criminal people uh, will be the first one to buy Bitcoin because then they can buy drugs and they can make a lot of money. And in Ethereum, there's going to be a lot of people that are making scams. Uh, but if you just focus on that initial usage, and you don't think about what can happen with the technology. It's, I mean, it's the same way. Like maybe internet was mostly used to send around pornographic pictures between horny geeks at one point in time. It didn't mean that internet wasn't going to change the entire, uh, the entire uh, world of finance one day. And I have described DeFi as like a few. Now I think we're moving away away from it. But I think that uh, I have described a few a year ago. I I described DeFi as in the the ASCII, you know, ASCII, A-S-C-I-I uh, uh, version, like the ASCII porn version uh, of the internet, basically. But uh, we, we, you can see that the fundamental properties are there. Everything is working kind of shitty now, but I do think that, you know, what's going to come out of this industry is going to be uh, completely amazing and, and change the entire world. Yeah, I like the metaphor of like just the siloed data providers or service providers for the GPS with as like the current financial institution, whereas DeFi is like this massive crucible survival of the fittest. If you don't, if you aren't a good product, you're not going to make it. And and it's all done on this one canonical platform, right? It's very much like the, the how we articulate the bull case for DeFi as well. I want to turn to uh, one of your also Ethereum subjects that, that you've written about and talked about in the past. And this was really a pretty like, at least for me, it was very much of a groundbreaking article for how I understood proof of stake. And that was your proof of stake is less wasteful article. And this was, for me, the first articulation of the nature of proof-of-stake security that is ultimately now a part of uh, a very fundamental piece of the ultrasound money thesis. Uh, and, and so the, the way that um, you articulated this is that you, it was like the, you articulated the natural efficiency of proof-of-stake systems to provide security. Uh, and the way that I articulated this uh, in, in response to after reading this, your article is that Ethereum naturally, and proof of stake in Ethereum naturally rewards bullishness, very much like a DeFi yield farm, right? But instead of the incentives of this Ethereum native yield farm, which is proof of stake, the incentives are so incredibly strong because they are being rewarded with Ether, the asset. And naturally, the cost of proof of stake 
is how much you have to pay people to be bullish on Ethereum. And if there are plenty of people who are super, super bullish on Ethereum, then the actual cost to secure Ethereum are almost minimal. And Eric, you wrote this piece back at the end of 2019. So um, one, I want to ask you about like, has your mental models about proof of stake uh, become updated at all since then? And how do you articulate the same kind of thesis like a year and a half later? Actually, I think that, uh, you know, I spent such an immense uh, uh, amount of time uh, thinking about, um, you know, I had, I had spent, you know, I, I was very influenced by Paul Stork, who's a, fr a friend of mine now, uh, that um, I was very much in the same way as most Bitcoiners at the time thought that uh, you can, it's, it's, it's inherently impossible to create a more uh, uh, cost-efficient uh, consensus algorithm because you have a security budget, it means you have a reward uh, that can uh, be farmed by miners or validators and uh, you're always going to be able to, you, everyone is always going to spend uh, uh, as much resources as, as they can to earn that reward uh, as long as they're still profitable. So if the reward is $100, you're going to spend at least $99 worth of work, whether it be locking up your capital or uh, burning electricity. So you cannot create a more uh, cost-effective system than what the proof of work uh, already is. And that was the way that I thought about it. And then you have this entire conversation around, okay, well, uh, locking up liquidity uh, versus burning energy. Uh, if we contrast those uh, two things, uh, Paul Stort's argument was that, well, you know, locking up liquidity also has a cost. Uh, it has the cost that you, now you make capital uh, inaccessible to society that could have been put to bed to better use. Um, uh, that's that's a very very uh, actually complicated uh, thing that I go through in the piece, and there's multiple ways that you can look at that. Uh, one way that you can look at it is that okay, but when you lock up capital, uh, the value doesn't get trapped there it actually flows back to the like if you have, if you have like if you have bitcoin and we take 50% of the supply of bitcoin and we lock it up and only 50% is circulating then it's going to and demand can only go into the circulating uh, amount of the supply the value is going to rise in the in the uh, in the uh, unlock in the circulating pool so you cannot fundamentally trap value, but there, the, the the nuance there that I go through in the article, I think, is that uh, when when you have uh, specific parties locking up their capital, I mean the the the, 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 the participants that has the, the this capital to lock up, they are usually people that have accumulated resources, and people that have accumulated resources probably have some type of knowledge. And when they lock up their liquidity and it just flows back and it gets splashed over this uniform blob of people, uh, then you actually do lose some economic potential because it's now you have, you have concentrated uh, portions of liquidity that can be injected into projects. They can, it can be invested. It can be used to do productive things. Now it just flows back into a, a, a gray blob of people and they don't necessarily like if everybody if you put a hundred dollars in every person's pocket it doesn't necessarily mean that 
anything exciting is going to happen. They're going to buy a hot dog and then it's over. Uh, whereas this single investor with all that capital could have created a fantastic business. So I do think that uh, there is uh, there is definitely uh, uh, like some uh, there is a cost to society for locking up liquidity, uh, but. If, uh, like you said, if the person that is locking up that liquidity, if what he wanted to do with that liquidity was just to hold ether, then it then there is no there is no negative uh, consequence, and that's what I realized in the article uh, that uh, if you have these bullish people on ether, uh, then they are they are going to be the and uh, uh, they, when they are staking ether, they're not causing any cost to to the society overall and and uh, j- just in the same way that we're talking about in bitcoin mining the people who are going to be the most profitable uh, mining bitcoin are the ones that have access to the cheapest source of electricity and that uh, that's usually uh, people that are monetizing excess uh, renewable energy like the energy that they can't use for anything else they can only throw it away or mine bitcoin with it their cost for the electricity is zero so that, that's going to be the bitcoiners think that that's going to be the predominant source of electricity uh, for bitcoin and if you apply that same lens of thinking to ethereum then what is the cheapest source of liquidity in Ethereum? Well, it is the people who are committed to holding Ethereum for a very long time. They have no alternative cost. There's nothing else that they would have done with the capital. They have zero cost to 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 use this capital to to stake Ether. They they do take on some risk. There's always, of course, some risk. There must be some risk with staking, but there is no cost to society. And uh, with mining, you still have like, even if we say that all the energy in the world uh, that is being used to mine Bitcoin, uh, you still have the cost of actually producing the ASICs, the ASIC miners. You cannot make uh, those that cost disappear. You cannot say that that is 100% produced by renewable, uh, you know, you didn't get the steel from uh, from uh, wind. <laughs> I mean, so so uh, because of that, uh, proof of stake is actually less wasteful. And I do think if Ethereum becomes a form of money or something that people believe in, like an investment that people want to hold, uh, I don't want to go exactly into that, right? But if we just take a, 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 a cryptocurrency system that runs on proof of stake, and we say that this system is going to be the hard sound money that the f- we're going to use in the future, then there's going to be tons of people that just hold the currency uh, because hard money inherently increases in value in alignment with uh, the the output of society growing. The, uh, 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 the, the production rate of society, uh, as that improves, it's going to increase the, 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 the value of the currency. That's how economic uh, uh, that's how economics work and it works very well when the supply of the currency is fixed so yes i do think that what's written in that article very much you know i think i came to the to the conclusion and i paul actually wants to debate me about this mm-hmm. article he thinks that uh, i am wrong and we uh, have scheduled uh, a preliminary debate uh, we haven't set the date uh, but we have decided that we are going to discuss this in deep detail at one point however uh other people say that they want us to to do it in written format because it's too difficult Mm. to go through these very very complex nuances 
uh, online. But I hope I un- answered your question that yes, what I wrote there is very much yeah. how I think about it today. Eric, what's so fascinating to me about this is like bringing this uh, full circle to sort of like human beings having collective power. Human beings is almost like a, an ant colony, right? So like, what is money? Money is um, the collective thought of a society, of a group of human beings in terms of where they want to store their wealth and where they want to store their value, right? There's almost like this mimetic quality uh, to money. What is the best money? It's the money that everyone else chooses uh, to be money. And what's interesting to me about your argument is like, we've talked about this with Justin Drake in Ultrasound Money, which is like an Ultrasound Money episode. Uh, which is like if a crypto economic network like Bitcoin or Ethereum has a monetary premium in its base asset, it gets this economic security for free, essentially. And you just extended that in 2019 with your article to proof of stake. So like if there's a bunch of people who are bullish about Ether and they hold their Ether, they're going to do this at the lowest possible cost. It's almost like the network gets economic security at a discount. Why? Because the base layer asset has this special privilege uh, in that it is a monetary asset. And not all cryptocurrency networks get to have that privilege. Bitcoin, of course, has had it. Uh, We would argue on Bankless that Ethereum is also getting it. But I noticed something, Eric, that you stopped short of calling Ether sound money. And I'm curious because you have um, this history in Bitcoin. What is holding you back from thinking about Ether as sound money? Or am I wrong about that? Do you think Ether is sound money right now? Um, I think I think, I think you know uh, my answer already. And I think that, um, I mean, Bitcoin is a reaction to that money can be so easily manipulated by politics and the central banking system. And uh, Bitcoin goes in the completely different direction. It goes, it takes us back to the gold standard and we we adhere to the philosophy of Bitcoin and Bitcoiners all over the world. We care most of all about the um, predictability of the monetary policy of Bitcoin. And we view that as one of the most foundational uh, properties of a good sound money. Whereas in Ethereum, you have a different philosophy where you care more about securing Ethereum. You want to secure your uh, DeFi systems by having a sufficient security budget for that. Um, And you don't have any qualms about changing uh, the emission rate of Ether to accommodate what the system needs. Uh, So... The reason why um, I do think of Bitcoin as having uh, upper hand in becoming a dominant store value and the dominant medium of exchange is because the meme of a strong monetary, immutable monetary policy, whether or not that actually factually works in practice or not, we know that reality and facts don't actually have so much influence in, into the thinking and brains of, of humans, but it it, it it is the memes that, that, that count. So I think that the meme of an immutable 
predictable uh, monetary policy that Bitcoin has historically followed, uh, whereas uh, Ethereum hasn't. And also the the, the, the very beautiful uh, inception of Bitcoin of the uh, Satoshi Nakamoto who never ever uh, uh, spent a penny of, of the early uh, bitcoins that he made and then he disappeared and had no influence in the system bitcoin is much more this abstract brand it's 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 just bitcoin you don't know who the founder is and the monetary policy is immutable it aligns so it fits so much well uh, uh, it's it, it fits so much better into this category of a digital gold uh, than ethereum does and i do think that there is uh, very strong reasons why gold was the most formidable form of money for thousands of years in human history and i think that the cryptocurrency that better emulates those properties are gonna win in the memetic game of of creating a sound uh, money because after all it is a memetic game uh, now i do think that the uh, bitcoin is gonna the mistake that bitcoiners did uh, was focusing on the stock to flow ratio which is um, i mean you don't gold has an emission rate right uh, there's new gold being brought out, dug out of the ground uh, that isn't 100% predictable, but all we know that is roughly is around 2% every year. Uh, so, uh, but but because Bitcoin is supposed to have a fixed supply, then uh, this whole idea of you know that you you know the stock to flow model, of course, and I think perhaps most of your listeners do. I mean, now so many Bitcoiners think that the reason that Bitcoin is going to be successful and hyper-Bitcoinization is going to happen is because the price is going to go up so much just because Bitcoin has a fixed supply. But if you are now in that frame of thinking uh, and now Ethereum is going to burn a portion of its fees uh, after EIP-1559 gets activated and Ethereum could create it and is already creating a meme of itself uh, in having a deflationary supply, a uh, supply that shrinks because the gas fees are being burnt, then now the stock-to-flow ratio of uh, uh, of, of uh, Ethereum isn't even uh, infinity. It goes into the negative, but it actually goes into the complex number plane. Uh, so uh, I think Bitcoiners have shot themselves in the foot by play, trying to play the memetic sound money game by looking at the stock to flow ratio and you know how much i did to uh try to get bitcoiners away from that uh because i knew that this would uh fuck everything up for bitcoin if we focused on too much on the stock to flow ratio and that's why i've spent the last uh, year or so trying to uh get people away from the stock to flow ratio uh obsession and getting them more focused on the rainbow chart, which doesn't have this uh, supply-centric uh, way to analyze how the price should uh, develop, and that's that's why I'm now uh, the rainbow guy uh, because I, I I knew that this was going to happen. I try to get people away from from uh, the stock to flow ratio. Uh, I ultimately I think I perhaps failed, and because of that, uh, Ethereum is going to uh, have a great. Uh, chance to compete in the memetic game of being sound money that's the bitcoiners fault on their own they, they created this situation for themselves and the way that i uh the way that i how i acted in that situation is i just i i i uh, i uh, ha, i built a larger ether exposure 
in my bags because uh, in in two thousand one one year ago I I I knew that uh, uh, first of all I knew that the layer two solutions uh, for Ethereum were gonna uh, work out and I knew that um, uh, I, I I also knew that the uh, uh, there's gonna come a tons of people into uh, into the cryptocurrency de- debate and they're gonna think that. Uh, Bitcoin uses too much uh, energy, and uh, as uh, also I understood that EIP. This happened a bit later. I think that uh, a while later that I understood that the, that the uh, supply of Ethereum is also going to shrink. I did see that you know now Ethereum has uh, so much potential to start competing in the memetic game of of being money that. You know, flipping is no longer off the table. You know, I personally still prefer the predictable monetary policy. Like that's how I think that uh, we we should. That's the most powerful uh, uh, principle to stick by if you want to create uh, sound money. But I do think that Ethereum has been fundamentally undervalued because it has these other arguments that also resonate very well. Uh, so I did build out a big uh, Ethereum uh, stack, and now I'm outperforming Bitcoin because of that. So uh, thank and that's thanks to the stock-to-flow Bitcoiners that made stock-to-flow such a big part of what cryptocurrency is. That I'm now I now I can bank on the meme of uh, deflationary supply in, in 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 Ethereum because of that. So I guess in the, the that's the silver lining of being tortured by these uh, stock-to-flow uh, obsessionists in in. Eric, do you think that Ether is disqualified from being sound money or do you think that it could become sound money via like different routes other than just a completely hard cap monetary policy? Is this something that Ethereum, Ether and Ethereum can find over time? Uh, and then also, do you think that if there is a flippening that the prerequisite is Ether being quote unquote sound money in the eyes of the people that value it? Or can it flip in Bitcoin via other merits? Well, I think that Ether can become money. Uh, I don't think that uh, Ether can become sound money in the sense that Bitcoin can become sound money. It can it can become a kind of money that people may use, and they may even use it if if this edge case of the flipping does happen and. Uh, uh, Ethereum uh, wins over Bitcoin and people start to use it as, as money, it's it's going to be a much, much sounder money than any type of fiat money uh, that we have because uh, even though that, yes, the, the monetary policy can be changed, it's still going to be, uh, it's it, like, it, Bitcoiners like to say, well, Bitcoin Ethereum is not no different than uh, you know just a central bank uh, uh, deciding to buy uh, treasury bonds or changing interest rates and, and then printing money. But I do think it's different. I mean, it's it is a, after all it's a centralized protocol, and if you're uh, if you're involved a little bit in uh, Ethereum governance, you know that uh, it, it, Ethereum at least has the potential to uh, cement its uh, strategy around the monetary policy much more than what you could expect from a nation state. So I do think that Ethereum can be much sounder money than, than fiat currency can be. Uh, but I don't think that Ethereum necessarily should strive to ever become 
uh, I mean, Ethereum can become a sound money in the sense that this, the supply is very constrained, right? We can reach that phase where the, 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 it's actually a negative emission rate uh, year over year. Uh, but that's not you know, my definition of sound money. My definition of sound money also includes the, the, this predictability. And it's never going to get as good of a brand in that category as Bitcoin has because Bitcoin never changed its monetary policy. And Bitcoin also uh, has this immaculate conception and leader, leaderless uh, launch and brand uh, around it that uh, Ethereum can never uh, compete with. But that doesn't mean that, you know, it doesn't mean that uh, it still can't, that it can't win ultimately. So I do think that the flipping can happen. Ethereum can be, uh, you know, relatively sound money, but uh, it's never gonna, it's never gonna get as far. Uh, of, if if Bitcoin succeeds as sound money, it's gonna be a sounder form of money than than Ethereum uh, can achieve in it, in it, in it, its best case scenario. If that makes sense. So. Eric, we've um, given Bitcoiners a hard time on this episode. I think it's time to give Ethereans a hard time too. What's something you think Ethereans get wrong? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, uh, is there just too much? <laughs> is your brain just spilling over with all of these things? I mean, uh, uh, you know, I don't. I don't want to point fingers at specific people and specific projects, but I think that there is like the, I think that like overall the entire Ethereum uh, project is an entire mess uh, right now. And uh, some can think that it's, it's a, it's a beautiful innovative mess, but I actually do think that governance wise, it's uh, kind of a, a, a clusterfuck. It's not the best, uh, governed uh system that, that that you have out there uh i do think that uh, uh the ethereans themselves like the ethereum people they don't uh they many times they don't understand the types of uh, uh, like if you take a defi application for instance and uh, then they start to talk then they start to talk about the qualities of this defi application and what they're describing, like if you talk about the decentralization and the trustlessness uh, properties of this application compared to what the factual reality is, then uh, Ethereans are very easily misled into thinking that the product is much better than it is. And they underestimate so many of the risks that they are creating in DeFi um uh that that you know i'm seeing these uh i'm constantly seeing these systemic risks being built up inside the ethereum system and i don't think that the stewards of the like the ethereum thought leaders and the builders of ethereum i mean i i i see so many uh things coming out of ethereum's mouths that make me uh uh, shiver on a, on a on a daily basis like like, like if, if we just take a, an example like do you remember when we had this whole uh supply gate scandal uh in when we tried to get just somebody to respond to what the supply of ether was like how many ethers there are out there 
Yes. And for listeners, there was sort of a narrative among Bitcoiners. It's just like, hey, you can't prove what the supply of ETH is. Ethereans, tell us what the supply of ETH is. And a number of, of prominent Bitcoiners, you know, pushed this out and kind of challenged the Ethereum community to say what the supply of uh, Ether was. That's what you're referring to. Yeah. And then Vitalik said, look at Etherscan. <laughs> <laughs> And that was, I mean, I, I cannot understand, like, I, did, did you just miss uh, eight or ten years of crypto economic history? Like, did you just miss the entire purpose of what, what we're trying to achieve here? We're trying to build systems that can be independently verified by everyone. Uh, then you cannot, if, you, if you're creating this, uh, uh, you know, acceptance that, Looking at sources like Infura, looking at sources like Etherscan, if that is the basis that you 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 your 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 that's how you're educating people in your in your system, you're gonna end up. Like, I'm thinking, you know, what I'm most worried about in Ethereum is that you are constantly compromising on decentralized. But I mean, and I do. I got, uh, first first of all, I gotta give Ethereum kudos that compared to uh, Solana and. Um, uh, Avalanche and uh, Binance Smart Chain and um, all these other Ethereum killers, then Ethereum has stayed true to the uh, decentralization uh, um, philosophy much more than those other projects. That is why Ethereum has uh, difficulties scaling and, and, and moving fast and and. and, and you know, they are, you know, Ethereans are actually trying a little bit to have a decentralized system, uh, whereas many of, you know, the Definity in these projects, they, they don't care, and Hedera Hashcraft, they don't care about it at all. Ethereum, they you, you do care, you do care about it. So so I got to give kudos for that, first of all. But uh, when you, when we're, when we're talking about, you know, syncing the, an Ethereum node, for instance, we're always, we're always moving uh, the gold post. So first, it was let's sync the entire Ethereum uh, chain. Then you know let's just look at the uh, the state root of Ethereum and let's just sync from that. And then we can then we can uh, use what's called fast sync. So we just sit, we just look at the we just look at the current state and then we uh, just verify the uh, proof of work on the headers. Uh, and now we're moving to snap sync, which syncs even. Uh, like in in fast sync, you actually did sync. Uh, you did fully sync uh, part of uh, from 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 a, from a snapshot. You did sync uh, the actual Ethereum blockchain, uh, but in snap sync, you're syncing even less of the, uh, and that's becoming the default now. That you're you're actually validating less and less and less of the Ethereum protocols and rules. Uh, all the time in order to make your clients faster, and uh, I think also that uh, the the term the terminology and the language uh, is deteriorating. Where because I think it's fine. Like I think it's completely fine. If you want to snap sync your node, if you think that security mechanism is enough for you, by all means do it. There are Bitcoiners that run their clients with assume valid flags, where they also skip part of the of the validation, but. If you're going to call that a full node, if you're going to call those nodes full nodes, 
and you say it validates them, what people are going to think is that they are independently validating the entire system, then uh, you are creating these systemic risks in the Ethereum system where uh, all of a sudden we've changed the terminology so much and we, we changed the default settings of everything so much that we can actually have the entire system collapse by uh, uh, very few nodes actually collapsing. Uh, like if you take um, Matic, for instance, like uh, I did tweet about Matic uh, pretty recently and I did say that I am uh, just learning about the system because I have ignored Matic for a long time because I consider it to be a uh, just a proof of stake sidechain and I'm much more interested in the roll-up things. Uh, but but uh, from my understanding, a Matic node uh it re it gets its uh the the the, the, the keys the, the the validators in in matic they are chosen in an ethereum uh smart contract like on the on the mainnet that's where those keys are set but the full nodes in matic they don't sync the ethereum chain so how do they know when they're looking at that contract how do they know that what is inside that ethereum mainnet smart contract is actually valid if the Matic nodes don't actually sync the Ethereum chain. So it's these types of things that I see where you're uh, having applications that are just reading information from completely centralized sources and you're creating, uh, not at all, uh, in, in many cases, uh, decentralized uh, uh, systems. Uh, I do. I, I do have to say though that I have changed my uh, my my my. Um, I used to be uh, so anal about decentralization when it came to Ethereum that I that I didn't think that uh, uh, that I thought everything was going to fail. But I have later changed my thinking now uh, to valuing much more than just the permissionlessness quality, like. What you really need to have in order to create this innovative environment is just that people can build things permissionless, that they can use it uh, without there being any guardians. So that it's permission, it's permissionless to build. That's the most important quality. And I don't know if decentralization, I mean, decentralization, decentralization saves you from a few, perhaps not very likely risks that may not happen, or regulatory clampdowns that may not happen. But uh, the, 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 the way that the DeFi uh, evolution and, and, and the revolution is going to happen uh, mainly uh, comes from the permissionlessness uh, quality and the composability qualities uh, more. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that uh, concerned about that Ethereum is just semi-decentralized uh, these days. Um, did, I, did that answer your question? It does, yeah. And we uh, absolutely don't have uh, time to go into all of those items. I will note on the supply issue, the Ethereum community eventually provided a much better response than what you said was uh, Vitalik's initial response with some code that sort of validated the Ether supply. But what's super interesting, Eric, is I think uh, among honest Bitcoiners that we see who are drawn towards the thesis of decentralization, we hear kind of a common sentiment of like, the thing I worry about Ethereum is an erosion of the values of decentralization. Yep. And it can happen to a community quickly. And I think that's really what you're expressing exactly. in your comments here. What One other axis of decentralization that I think... Um, the bankless program emphasizes too is like 
the the access of having a banking layer that is custodial, right? So that I feel like is an erosion of the Bitcoiner uh, value systems. If you're using instead of you know a a trading system like like Uniswap, which is relatively decentralized, you are doing your trading on Coinbase or or Binance when you are using BlockFi instead of Aave, right? So that is another axis that I feel like the Bitcoin community doesn't look at enough. The decentralization of not just their monetary system, but the banking layer on top. And Eric, we probably don't have time to get into all of that because we've got to uh, come to a close. Is there anything you want to say though, quickly? No, I want to say that I think that you're correct. And I think uh, I was on a podcast with Stefan Levera and Udi Wertheimer talking about, okay, so what if Lightning doesn't work out? They said, well, we're probably going to use you know custodial solutions for transferring Bitcoin. And I do think that, yes, uh, because you can do so much more with Ethereum, we're going to be able to decentralize more things inside. Uh, the more parts of finance is going to be decentralized in Ethereum. Um, so I do very much resonate with what you just said right now. And I do think that it is true that Bitcoiners do underplay that part of this conversation. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I agree with you uh, on, on that notion, definitely. Yeah. Eric, on the uh, Bankless podcast, we like to give out this line about uh, just how we are all like going west. We are all exploring the frontier. You don't have to do it alone. You can join a community. You can join a club. But uh, I, I see you as venturing off in the frontier very much on your own as like this this lone wolf person who very clearly thinks for himself, uh, but has you know chosen to specifically not be tribal and really just stick to your own guns and stick to your own values and, and thought processes. Uh, and the other characteristics I would describe to you is that you kind of default to skepticism uh, and you generally proceed with caution, which I think are very valuable characteristics to have and perhaps why you have been uh, in the crypto industry for so long and not gotten washed out as so many people do. So can you kind of reflect on, on these qualities, uh, maybe the ones I named and maybe the ones I didn't name, that you think have really been helpful for you to navigate this industry for such a long period of time? Yeah. And then also, what do you have any other advice for you know first cyclers or crypto novices who are just getting into this world of crypto and think that perhaps like Cardano or Ripple are the future? Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, you know, I um, it's pretty crazy, but I did find a unique... What I found, uh, in my opinion, was a unique niche in the cryptocurrency uh, space was to just stick to the truth, like just stick to the, like what is the actual nature and reality of the situation and speak your mind without bias. So I tried to be as as unbiased as possible and uh, surprisingly, there's almost nobody else that uh, is trying to fill that niche of being as unbiased as possible. You know, most people, they have their project. They want to make the best out of that project. And and uh, I don't know if there are any other unbiasedness uh, maximizers uh, out there. Uh, I know that there are some, like, there. I like I think that probably uh, Hasu, uh, a friend of mine, that uh, he also, I feel like he sticks to that principle of just, not caring about bias and just caring about the reality. So, so yeah, that's uh, that's why what, what I have to add on that. And you also asked me about um, uh, you also asked me about uh, if I have any first cycle uh, recommendations to people. Uh, 
uh, when we started to talk in this podcast, we talked about how I came into this space as this uh, 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 digital biologist. That, uh, but uh, it's actually not entirely correct. I actually came into this space as someone that wanted to learn how to become a financial trader. So, for uh, it was only a few years down the road when I really understood the components of the blockchain that I understood that it was a primitive life form. Um, but I spent I spent two uh, years or three years trying to learn how to trade, and and for many of those years I was using very very stupid primitive technical analysis. I was looking at the same dumb indicators that you see all of these technical TA advisors use. I was following the MACD, RSI, RSI uh, uh, indicators and trading based on that. And it didn't. It took me until I learned how to program and backtest my own strategies to understand uh, that I was doing complete nonsense uh, things. And then I started to question the whole field of uh, technical analysis and especially the Bitcoiner technical analysis uh, that I found out that it was basically just a big scam. And if I could give anybody some advice, uh, uh, don't go down the technical analysis route. You cannot, they don't work. They're not going to sell you a course that's going to make you infinite money for $50 a month. Try to get involved in communities. Like try, you can, you can become... Uh, actually very rich in the cryptocurrency space by just be- learning how these systems work, producing value and becoming members of, for instance, DAOs and Ethereum. And uh, I mean, these, like, I think you have put it in a pretty nice way that like the, the, we have DAOs in Ethereum that are looking for workers. And if you can provide work to those DAOs, you, you can get uh, crypto coins. Then you can use those crypto coins to invest in other systems that you understand, and then you can build wealth for yourself. That is how you become profitable uh, in this industry. If, if you're starting with no capital today, uh, versus then you know, trying to buy a fifty-dollar course, that's that's pretty much my advice. There you go, Bankless Nation. That advice from Eric Wall. Of course, none of this was financial advice, but Eric has been in crypto since 2012. He survived up to this point. Mm-hmm by holding views on decentralization and thinking about the long-term of this space, the long-term trajectory. Eric, it's been a pleasure to have you on Bankless. You know what, man? I feel like we're much more aligned than I thought we were at the start of this podcast. And uh, it's always good to see a kindred spirit in the space who's here for some of the same reasons we are on the Bankless podcast. So thanks for joining us, man. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Action items. Of course, you have to follow Eric Wall at ERCWL on Twitter. Got some fire thoughts coming at you. We will also include some of the articles we referenced in the show notes. One that David mentioned, proof of stake is wasteful. Less wasteful. On cows, volcanoes, and staking. If that doesn't tweak your interest, I'm not sure. Proof of stake is less wasteful. It's less wasteful. Thanks, David. (laughs) Very important point. Very important point. Disregard (laughs) what I just said. Anyway, the show notes are available for you to read. Those articles are referenced. Of course, guys, risks and disclaimers. Bitcoin is risky. ETH is risky. DeFi is risky. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. Mm